National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. And good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security challenges and opportunities, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore these challenges and opportunities. We're going to take a look at the maritime services today, also called the sea services. The the sea services include the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Marine Corps, the U.S. Coast Guard, and the U.S. Merchant Marine. We're going to look at those four sea services from the perspective of the one organization that supports those four services in critical ways, including advocating in front of Congress, supporting the sailors and Marines and their families, and educating the American public about the fact that the United States is, in fact, a maritime nation. With us to discuss today's topic is Christopher Townsend, who currently serves as national president for the Navy League of the United States, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization that champions the sea services. Chris Townsend spent 22 years as an officer in the United States Navy with his primary duty as a P-3C, or P-3 Charlie, pilot and mission commander. He completed three overseas deployments and extensive anti-submarine and anti-surface warfare patrol missions around the world. He also spent extensive time with Destroyer Squadron 7, embarked aboard the USS Constellation, and over 15 years as a Navy instructor pilot on various Navy aircraft, finishing his career as the commanding officer of Operational Support Unit 0355 in Orlando, Florida. Employed as a Delta Airlines pilot since 1997, Chris Townsend has spent the the past 15 years flying internationally on the Boeing 777 and the Airbus A350, A350, which is uh, Delta's flagship, conducting ultra-long-haul operations throughout the world, including as a Czech pilot and instructor. Chris has served the Navy League of the United States in a variety of advancing leadership positions (coughs) since 2009, culminating in his being elected national president at the 2022 National Convention. Chris Townsend assumed his current duties as the 52nd national president of the Navy League of the United States in June of this year. (coughs) Chris Townsend, welcome to National Security This Week. Sorry, I got a little uh, dust in my throat there. Hey, good morning, John. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So it turns out that you and I both spent a little time on board USS Constellation. When were you embarked with the Destroyer Squadron? Uh, I was with Desron 7 as a uh, guest, the, uh, the VPLO, the P3 Liaison Officer with the Constellation Battle Group, uh, two different times, but they were uh, uh, 1994. I'm, I'm aging myself here, but uh, um, yeah, it was uh, 1994, so right as I was leaving my uh, my squadron in Hawaii. Yeah, I uh, I uh deployed with ranger on her last deployment with air wing two and then we switched over to connie and i started the workup cycle so i had left before you uh, showed up the first time so but it was a great ship constellation was uh chris we have a lot a lot to talk about today uh let's go ahead and get started uh i want to give you the maximum opportunity to tell our guests about the navy league and to have a lot of discussions about the sea services uh, today so why don't we go ahead and start with this uh, why don't you tell us about the navy league of the united states when and why was it founded what what does it do and how many people are members of the organization absolutely my favorite topic to discuss <laughs> um so uh 
Uh, ironically, this Monday, we uh, the organization turns 121 years old. All right. The Navy League, Navy League of the United States was was uh, founded in support uh, by President Teddy Roosevelt, November 20th, 1902, at the New York Yacht Club. The uh, the the very foundation of the Navy League was uh, was was began. Uh, so Teddy Roosevelt is our founding father. He's a he's a very significant figure within our organization. Obviously, a great uh, great Navy man, a supporter of the sea services, but. Uh, his vision was to sub- to start a citizen-based organization to support our nation's services. And as you said, the Navy, the Marine Corps, our Coast Guard, and U.S. flag merchant Marines. Um, we uh, presently have uh, 31,000 active members. We have 190 councils around the world. And our mission is pure and simple. We educate, advocate, and support on behalf of our sea services. We educate the nation's public about our sea services and the needs of those sea services and our sailors. We advocate for those needs locally and in the halls of Congress. And we support in a variety of, of different ways the sea services wherever we can. And that, that support uh, primarily takes place at our local councils. Uh, I, I like to say that you know the local councils are the backbone of the Navy League. That's where our mission meets the road. And each each individual council, based on geography, you know, wh- where they are in relation to a U.S. base um, or other uh, maritime activities, you know, they, they they each support the sea services in their own unique way. But um, uh, you know, we will adopt bases or ships, squadrons. Um, the uh, the Navy League councils put on the. Uh, the uh, Navy birthday balls every October around the country and around the world. We do ship commissionings for all the uh, new ships coming in for the Navy and the Coast Guard. Um, and uh, we do a lot of support with youth programs, primarily the Sea Cadet program, which the Navy League started in 1961 at the behest of Congress to start a, a military-focused youth program the Sea Cadets quickly spun off into their own 501C, but we uh, we maintain a very close relationship with the Sea Cadet program. They uh, they live in our building in Arlington, and um, we work extremely closely with them. Um, but that's uh, that's really in a nutshell what the Navy League was designed to do. What we do every day, um, we have councils both in the United States and internationally. And we feel like that, that that international presence is really important to um, support our sailors when they're deployed overseas and make port calls and also just to educate the world about the USC services. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about how important the, the local uh, councils are. Uh, for instance, the Minnesota Council was there to support the commissioning of USS Minnesota one of the Virginia-class submarines. Uh, I think that happened in Norfolk, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then just very recently, the commissioning of USS Minneapolis-St. Paul in Duluth, uh, which was the first time that I, I believe that a, a U.S. Navy combatant ship uh, was was commissioned here in the state of Minnesota. So pretty important stuff that the, that the League does, and I know that they support uh, the uh, the Sea Cadets here in Minnesota. That is a primary mission for, for the Minnesota Council. So you mentioned some of the other key missions uh, the Navy League focuses on, including advocating 
with Congress in support of the of the C, of the four C services. I want to dive a little more deeply into that effort, and I'm going to I'm going to start this with just a little bit of a story. I retired back in 2011. Uh, a few years back, I was part of a group who had lunch with the the then U.S. representative to Congress who served this district, and he happened to be a retired colonel in the Marine Corps. Uh, I attended that lunch with our our mutual friend, Bill James, who used to serve as the president of the Minnesota Council of the Navy League. And we, when we re- mentioned that we were with the Navy League, this retired Marine Corps colonel and, and member of the U.S. House's, House of Representatives said he'd never heard of the Navy League, which we were both pretty stunned. Now, I know for a fact that over the last five, six years, I have seen uh, the national leadership of the Navy League of the United States uh, get far more engaged once again uh, directly with Congress, advocating on behalf of all of the sea services. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the Navy League of the United States advocates with Congress on behalf of the sea services and, frankly, the sailors, Marines, Coast Guardsmen and Merchant Mariners who serve in the sea services? Absolutely. So our advocacy efforts uh, start and are based upon the Navy League's maritime policy. Every two years, we have a a very esteemed group of experts from across the sea services and within our our executive committee sit down and they they, uh, forge our, our biannual maritime policy. And we really look at, uh, we deep dive each of the sea services and re- really get into uh, very comprehensive discussions about what is needed, what the priority should be. And um, we create this document, and that's really what we rally our, our, our advocacy efforts around. Um, we will do a, uh, every other year we do a congressional fly-in, and armed with that maritime policy, we visit the offices of uh, members of Congress and and senators uh, it, with our members, we uh, we storm the hill, if you will, and um, <laughs> you know walk the halls of Congress and discuss uh, the priorities in our in our maritime policy. We have an ongoing uh, program where we host shipbuilding caucus uh, breakfasts in uh, the congressional buildings. Um, I, I had an opportunity to to speak at one of those, and we introduce. Uh, the many topics of uh, concern and priorities, um, not only about shipbuilding, but uh, that, that that is primarily what we uh, we we talk about at those uh, breakfasts. Members of Congress will join and and uh, and, and become part of those conversations. Um, and uh, we host a uh, an annual event, which I hope we can talk about in detail later. Sea Air Space, um, you know, we we. Uh, it's a huge convention that we host every year at the uh, National Harbor, at the Gable uh, Hotel, the National Harbor, and very well attended. And a lot of our, our priorities are discussed at, at various um, uh, meeting and breakout sessions at CR Space. Um, and then uh, we just recently, last January 31st, we had the ribbon cutting for a, a, a new uh, department within the Navy League that we're extremely excited about. It's called the Center for Maritime Strategy. Uh, I hope to get into detail about this also, but uh, the Center for Maritime Strategy is a maritime think tank. Um, and uh, the center just hosted, and I had the opportunity to speak at their second congressional maritime intensive, where they invite members of Congress and their staff to our headquarters um, for, for again, detailed discussions um, about the maritime space and our sea services, 
they receive presentations from uh, absolute experts across the, the maritime uh, ecosystem, former CNOs, secretaries of Navy. Um, but uh, I can think of no better way to, to accomplish two of our three pillars to educate and advocate by uh, actually educating within our own building the members of Congress on the needs of the sea services. So, so that's really how, uh, how it all happens. Um, we've been pretty darn successful on, on getting some things across the finish line that are really important to our sea services, our sea service members and their families. So one of the things that I know that uh, the Navy League has been advocating for with Congress is uh, is ensuring that the, the Jones Act stays strong. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the Jones Act? Sure. You know, the Jones Act was, was actually called the Maritime Marine Act of 1920. It was introduced by Senator Wesley Jones, which is where the name Jones Act has come from. But, you know, plain and simply, it it, it just protects the U.S. maritime industry uh, and, and basically requires that all goods transported by water between U.S. ports be carried on ships that are built in the U.S., flying the U.S. flag, owned by U.S. citizens, and crewed by U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Um, it ensures that we uh, maintain uh, a maritime capability within the United States uh, most importantly, so that we can use that maritime capability in, in times of conflict and war to transport the beans and bullets necessary for, for successful uh, successful endeavors in that regard. But, um, you know, again, it's been around for over 100 years, um, and it's, uh, it is a very important law for our maritime industry. And I want to get into some more of that uh, that maritime industry stuff a little bit later in the show, uh, so we'll return back to that. For our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Chris Townsend, who serves as the national president of the Navy League of the United States, and we're discussing the U.S. Sea Services. Uh, so, so, Chris... I'd like to ask a little bit more about how the Navy League engages with citizens across the United States and with members around the world, frankly. Uh, you, you mentioned all the different chapters on the international front. Uh, that, that to me, is absolutely fascinating. It's the Navy League of the United States, but you have international chapter members uh, all around the world. So I'm specifically thinking of the monthly magazine published by the Navy League. It's called Sea Power. I have my uh, I have my most recent issue on strategic ports right here with me in the in the studio. Can you please tell us a little bit more about Sea Power Magazine? What what is the mission of the Sea Power Magazine? So the Sea Power Magazine is almost as old as the Navy League of the United States. I don't have the exact date, but uh, the first editions of that were published in the early 1900s. And, and uh, simply, it's our Keystone publication uh, where we distribute information to our members, members of Congress, other partners, in, including industry and DOD, just to in, keep them informed on, on important sea service matters, issues in the maritime space, things that are going on uh, uh, around the world. And uh, we have a uh, our distributorship is around 45,000. It's uh, an extremely popular magazine. We send it out in, in hard copy and distribute it electronically. Um, as a member of the Navy League, that's one of the benefits that you receive um, is, is your monthly Sea Power magazine. 
but it is a great publication, extremely well done, and we're very proud of Sea Power Magazine. And and Sea Power sort of you have uh, feature articles. Uh, there are interviews regularly with leaders in the sea services. Uh, you have some columnists. Uh, th- this latest issue has a Navy League corporate member directorate. Uh, directory. So, so clearly, not only is it individual memberships, but there's corporate memberships to sponsor the existence of the Navy League of the United States, which is all great. Which uh, gives you the uh, the ability to do what you do with the reach that uh, that the organization has. Uh, so, the Nove- November issue of Sea Power uh, concentrated on something called America's strategic ports. Uh, plan that that's actually the feature story and it includes an interview with the current maritime administration's leader rear admiral ann phillips uh, who currently serves as the head of the maritime administration uh, could you tell us a little bit about america's port infrastructure and why it is such an important aspect of the navy league's work and if you could tell us a little bit more about the maritime administration and, and how important that organization is for america's economy Absolutely. You know, I, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Admiral Phillips. She is a, uh, a a great naval leader, and she's doing a, a super job as the administrator, as the 20th administrator of the uh, Maritime Administration. You know, basically, the Maritime Administration advises the uh, Secretary of Transportation on maritime matters, movement of food, supply chain issues, the U.S. maritime industry, ports and waterway infrastructure, strategic sea lift, and they also uh, oversee the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. Uh, so it's a, it's a very important organization, um, very important to uh, the um, economic uh, security of our, of our country. But, uh, you know, obviously having strong ports around our country is extremely important to be able to ensure, you know, supply chain movement of goods, um, you know, we all saw too vividly during COVID, uh, what happened when we didn't have workers in our ports to unload the ships and things backed up in the Harbor. And, uh, how many times did you hear the word supply chain as we were starting to come out of the COVID pandemic? And it really just affected all aspects of, the, of our economy and our country. But, um, you mentioned the strategic ports program. And that uh, is a uh, is a very organized program. There's 18 strategic ports across the country. Um, also uh, in Alaska and Guam that are uh, you know very important to be uh, you know they're 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 the the dedicated ports that that have to maintain certain um, certain abilities and, and capabilities. Again, 18 of those, there's 13 alternates around the country. Um, but that, that strategic port program is a joint, joint effort between the Department of Defense and the Department of Transportation. Um, there, there was a recent bipartisan uh, supported port infrastructure development program that was approved. And um, it provided $2.25 billion in investment in our U.S. ports, which just speaks to the importance being placed um, on the viability and health of those ports and the infrastructure to make sure that it maintains, um, you know, the the capabilities that we need to move our goods uh, out of our U.S. ports. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, I actually, so I, I served, my last tour of duty was a naval attache in, in Helsinki, Finland. So I still try and keep my finger on the pulse of what the Finns are doing. I, I don't know why, but, you know, it's been 12 years since I left that job, uh, but I'm still very interested. And, and the Finns, uh, they, they rely very heavily on their port infrastructure for imports and exports both. And they, they do some great uh, construction of shipping as well. Uh, so one of the things that I noted in a recent uh, posting from, from the Finnish uh, business industry uh, is that they are actually working right now uh, with uh, the, uh, the the seven largest seaports in the United States and their terminals. So that includes Los Angeles, Long Beach, Houston, Seattle, Tacoma, Savannah, and and in Virginia as well, uh, in the Hampton Roads area. Uh, they've been My selected hometown. as what's that? My hometown. <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, so what they've noted here is that there's uh, there's significant labor shortages at the U.S. ports. Uh, longshoremen are aging out, uh, like a lot of our, uh, our our major industries. There's outdated technology, inefficiencies in how the ports are designed and how they're connected up to the broader transportation networks. Uh, so they're actually they were saying uh, the U.S. invests a record uh, seventeen billion dollars in government support for the restoration of ports and waterways. That's huge. That's a huge investment uh, in this most recent bill. So the Finns are noting these opportunities in U.S. ports. I, I have to think that other countries around the world. Uh, who rely on U.S. exports or or shipping you know shipping out uh, for us? So we import goods from those company, countries. Uh, they all care about the the health and welfare, the uh, efficiency of U.S. ports. Uh, so obviously that's part of the maritime industry. Uh, clearly in 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 the uh, wheelhouse for the Navy League of the United States to advocate on behalf of of that industry. Uh, are, are there any things that you're hearing in your work as the national president uh, regarding? Uh, other infrastructure investments in ports or the waterways? Anything you've heard of? No, sir, not not anything else very specific. It's just, you know, I, I do know that there is a, um, you know, as you just mentioned, there there is a lot of attention on this. Um, there is a lot of funding being provided. And, and we all know the importance of sea lanes and, and shipping goods uh, across the world. You know, 90% of all our goods that are uh, transported um, around the world are done by sea. So, uh, and 95% of all the data transported around the world, are, you know, go across the seabed on, on data cables. So, um, you know, having, having those, uh, highly efficient ports are part of that process to, to help move those goods across the oceans. Yeah, and it's fascinating. I mean, glad you brought that up, these uh, critical choke points issues around the world. So the Panama Canal obviously is hugely important to the American economy. Uh, right now, the Panama Canal has been facing a, a major crisis because of uh, record-setting drought in Panama. So they haven't had the water that they need to allow some of the larger ships to move uh, back and forth across the canal. Interestingly enough, that, that has now shunted some of the shipping to the Suez Canal which itself suffered a major backup in traffic not long ago when one of those big cargo ships uh, ran aground and then shifted sideways in the wind. So these are all things that, that the Navy League of the United States cares about as you think about the broader world economy and the importance of these critical sea lanes and certainly the choke points around the world. Uh, any thoughts on, on uh, some of the strategic thinking that's been going on at the Maritime, uh, at the Institute there, the think tank at the Navy League on, on the importance of critical choke points? You know, the Center for Maritime Strategy puts out uh, all sorts of really, really uh, detailed um, uh, articles 
um, podcasts on all of these subjects. I would encourage everyone to, uh, you know, Google the Center for Maritime Strategy and, and get on their distribution list and, and, and listen to some of the things that they're, uh, they're putting out there. It's all critical issues that our maritime industry and our sea services face. Um, I'm not familiar specifically on anything that they've uh, recently talked about in this regard, but, you know, again, we all, everyone understands the importance of uh, um, maintaining the sea lanes, uh, the, the safe movement of goods across our oceans is critical. Um, and, uh, you know, those, those choke points are a big deal. And that those issues, I've, I've heard of those, those issues you're talking about. And, and, uh, you know, once, once that supply chain gets disrupted again, as we all saw too vividly, it's, uh, it, it affects every aspect of our economy and our, and our world as we know it. So we do know that uh, that places like Norfolk Naval Base, the biggest naval base in the world, have been have been getting flooded on a on a somewhat regular basis over the recent years. The U.S. Naval Academy just broke ground on a new seawall to try and keep the the flooding at bay. Uh, all of the infrastructure investment in America's ports is designed, I think, to make sure all of those critical ports are are useful going into the future. It's sort of a twenty five fifty year strategic investment effort because we rely so heavily on on uh, international shipping for our economy. But on a related topic, let's talk a little bit about America's shipbuilding capacity. Uh, now, there are many aspects to this, and I'd like to talk about the difference between American-flagged merchant ships built in U.S. shipyards and then talk about our capacity uh, for building ships for the Navy and for the Coast Guard. Uh, there's, a, there's a big difference between... <laughs> Building a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, uh, a Coast Guard security cutter, and a U.S. Navy nuclear-powered attack submarine as examples. Uh, so the Navy League keeps up on on ship construction. I, I don't. I'm not going to ask you to be an expert on ship construction, but what 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 have you seen in the way of uh, in the advocacy work with Congress regarding uh, ship construction for the sea services? Well, you know, since the early 80s, we've shut down 300 ship uh, building uh, yards across the country, and uh, it's a major issue. But we've fortunately, we've got amazing companies out there like Huntington Ingalls that are still putting out incredible uh, naval vessels like the uh, Gerald R. R. Ford uh, nuclear carrier that just got put out to sea here recently, and it's doing amazing things. so, uh, you know, it, it is a, it is an issue. Um, you know, we, uh, there is a workforce shortage across the spectrum. Um, not only, as you mentioned, longshoremen, but in, in the shipbuilding industry. I think you've probably seen recently, I've noticed in the last six months, the, uh, buildsummarines.com, the We Build Giants ad. So they're actually out there, you know, promoting, uh, young people in the United States to become, part of the uh, sh- the shipbuilding industry. But, uh, you know, it's receiving a lot of attention, um, and uh, it- it's important. We have to maintain a, uh, a-, a viable shipbuilding capacity in this in this country. Um, we've-, we've got a lot of great vessels that need to be put out. Uh, but, you know, we are uh, – the um, the issue is-, is receiving a lot of attention. But, you know, the um, – Merchant marine industry, in as a whole, um, you know, they we need more U.S. flag merchant marine ships. Uh, we need a you know an increased force of U.S. citizen merchant marines. 
And uh, we do need to continue to revitalize our shipbuilding industrial base. Uh, the number of new construction and repair shipyards um, you know, it needs to continue to be advanced uh, around the country. Fortunately, uh, the Navy League was very instrumental in the creation and development of the, net, the recent National Maritime Transportation Strategy. Um, and that was just introduced as part of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. We were huge advocates for the, uh, the National Maritime Transportation Strategy. And along uh, with, the, with some others, we, we did get across that across the finish line. And, you know, there, there's some really important parts of that, um, that strategy. You know, the Maritime Security Program, where uh, we, we maintain, uh, we pay stipends as a country to some dual-use ships that, that are uh, uh, obligated to um, become part of the uh, Military Sealift Command in the time of conflict, uh, a, a recent outgrowth of that is the uh, tanker security program. They've authorized, uh, the authorization just went from 10 to 20 additional uh, tankers that um, are dedicated to become part of the uh, Sealift Command. And um, so we're really proud of that maritime transportation strategy. Again, that's part of the advocacy efforts by the Navy League of the United States. And and, uh, that that was a, a real big win for us. Yeah, and I know that the Navy League of the United States was also advocating uh, for Congress to go ahead and f- uh, fund not only the design but eventually the construction of uh, Coast Guard's uh, polar security cutters w- with uh, climate change impacting the polar sea lanes. Uh, we want to make sure that we have the ability to carry out rescue operations, uh, et cetera, uh, on the part of the Coast Guard in uh, the Arctic Ocean. Uh, also on, on some of the Navy construction stuff that I know the, the Navy League has been advocating for, uh, the, the Navy actually bought uh, contractually uh, two carriers uh, signed in 2019, aircraft carriers, the future USS Enterprise and the future USS Doris Miller. And because of that two-ship two buy in 2019, uh, the United States saved about $4 billion <laughs> in costs uh, as opposed to having bought you know one and then the other sequentially. So they're actually talking right now about doing another two-carrier contract buy uh, for nuclear-powered aircraft carriers uh, numbered 82 and 83 having yet to be named. Uh, so that's very interesting. The other another interesting thing is, and I know that the Navy League's up on this as well, uh, is the submarine uh, construction process, and we'll get into that in a little bit more with uh, AUKUS. Uh, but uh, the Navy's looking at a two-submarine delivery rate starting in 2024 after having their sort of schedules upset a little bit. Uh, and then uh, the head of Navy submarine uh, readiness uh, is working on trying to get uh, maintenance up to speed. And we have two submarine programs, the the Virginia class, uh, the latest block uh, designs, and then also the new Columbia class submarine, which is designed to replace the Ohio class uh, fleet ballistic missile uh, boats. So these are all really interesting things, and I know I, I read about it all the time and in Sea Power and and, uh, and 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 other sources that I have through the Navy League, uh, the advocacy work that uh, the Navy League is doing on behalf of the of the sea services. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Chris Townsend, who serves as the national president of the Navy League of the United States, and we're discussing the U.S. Sea Services. Uh, so now, Chris, I expect many of our listeners will have heard of the AUKUS uh, partnership. AUKUS stands for Australia, United Kingdom, and United States, and there's a number of key pillars within the partnership designed to bolster 
the maritime capacity of those three nations to defend the sea lanes and, and, and so much more. Uh, one of the key aspects to the AUKUS agreement is cooperation between the U.S. and the U.K. with Australia to build new nuclear-powered attack submarines to try and increase the capacity uh, of our allied nations in the Western Pacific to have nuclear submarines out on do, on patrol in case anything should happen. Most importantly, to deter. But if some, things go sideways, we have that uh, that capacity uh, to respond. Uh, so when this idea, the AUKUS idea, was announced, many national security thinkers uh, celebrated the agreement, realizing how important it is for the U.S. to have strong partners in the Indo-Pacific region who can put to sea with the most advanced naval platforms on the planet, uh, specifically for deterrence. Uh, then reality set in, and, and the logisticians, uh, you and I both being career naval officers, know that amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics, but the logisticians started questioning whether the three partners had the shipbuilding capacity to meet each nation's individual needs, let alone expanding to include Australian domestic nuclear submarine uh, production. Uh, you have uh, your finger on the pulse of all this, especially with Admiral uh, James Fogo uh, leading the Center for Maritime Strategy. This topic of AUKUS and the impact in the in the Western Pacific, uh, Indo-Pacific theater as a whole, comes up pretty regularly. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the quandaries uh, the United States faces in bringing the AUKUS agreement up to full speed and what role the Navy League is, is playing to work with stakeholders to support this overall effort? You know, the uh, the emergence of China as a blue water Navy and the aggressive uh, uh, increase in their naval forces uh, has definitely changed the dynamics in the Indo-Pacific region. And I think that was the genesis for this uh, this AUKUS arrangement where we we needed, you know, our great allies in, in Australia to be able to uh, uh, go to sea with a nuclear, you know, a nuclear capacity in their in their submarine force. Um you know, it, the the agreement is moving forward. Uh, they have we have sailors, shipbuilders, and ship repair workforce in the U.S. and the U.K. doing nuclear submarine training. Uh, ironically, we just graduated the second class of uh, Australian officers in our new power school uh, last week, I believe. So those Australian crews and uh, shipbuilders and repair workers are getting trained today. To help overcome some of those uh, those issues you talk about, now the uh, the AUKUS agreement um, is uh, structured where Australia is is set to receive two um, gently used Virginia class <laughs> submarines, which are an amazing uh, attack uh, submarine platform. Uh, my godson is on on the South Dakota right now, and and they're just doing unbelievable things uh, with that boat. Um, uh, they're, they're right now, and we all know how schedules slip, you know, they're, they're scheduled to get their first, uh, block force, uh, boat in 2032, uh, a second in 2035, and then scheduled for a new boat in, uh, 2038, a, uh, block seven. Um, but, uh, you know, those two used boats, a Virginia class submarine has got a lifespan of about approximately 33 years. So those uh, boats that they receive will, will have about 15 years of service life uh, remaining. But, you know, just as you mentioned, the shipbuilding challenges we have out there, you, you're absolutely right. You know, some of the realities of uh, meeting these um, delivery um, delivery schedules, uh, you know, it's a challenge. But, but we've got our best and brightest on these. 
issues and and uh i'm confident that they'll uh, be able to meet meet those um those deadlines uh australia has just approved their own um domestic nuclear submarine building capability so uh you know in the in the macro scheme of things having them being able to produce nuclear submarines in australia will help help everyone out and uh and really ultimately at the end of the day it's uh you know, the ultimate goal is to maintain peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific region, and and having Australia with that capability is uh, is very very important. Yeah, and and uh, so those who were listening to last week's show, and and uh, Chris, I mentioned this to you when we were prepping for this show. I had Yuki Tatsumi from the Stimson Center on the show last week. Uh, or, or about maybe four or five months ago, I started seeing some of the national security. Uh, thinkers that are publishing in lots of different uh, journals and whatnot across uh, the national security arena talking about the fact that, okay, we've got the U.S., the U.K., and Australia as part of this AUKUS partnership, but there are some very capable maritime nations uh, that that we have not tapped into yet, Uh, strong uh, allied partners in Japan and South Korea. You were just in South Korea. Uh, Both the South Koreans and the Japanese have significant maritime shipbuilding capability for both merchant shipping and, frankly, for uh, for combatant shipping. Uh, do you have uh, any thoughts on, on some of this uh, strategy discussion about maybe inviting Japan and, and, and South Korea into an AUKUS arrangement or maybe even a separate agreement uh, that some of these national security thinkers have been talking about? I'm, and I'm really more asking you this as a, as a fellow retired naval officer who's thought long and hard about the importance of deterrence and being prepared uh, in, in case anything does go wrong, certainly in the Western Pacific, rather than as the national president of the, of the Navy League. Yeah, as you mentioned, I, I just uh, I just returned from a, a visit to South Korea last week. Um, we had a historic uh, signing of a memorandum of understanding with the South Korean Sea Power League. Uh, started uh, a few years ago as their own version of a, a you know a South Korean Navy League. Admiral Choi, uh, former CNO of the South Korean Navy, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in South Korea, is the is the president of the Sea Power League. We have an amazing relationship with uh, with Admiral Choi and the Sea Power League, and um, again, we we just had a, a fantastic uh, signing ceremony on uh, Thursday in Seoul, Korea. Um, they are not shy. South Korea is not shy about their aspirations for nuclear submarines, and um, and I wasn't shy about telling South Korea that you know. They need to expand their footprint. You know, they have, uh, they have, uh, out of obvious necessity, been a very littoral uh, focused Navy uh, with the threats that they, uh, they have every day with the, with the North Korean naval forces. But um, they, they are thinking to become more of a regional force. And they have mentioned that they would, they would also love to, uh, to get nuclear submarines. Uh, they have a very robust shipbuilding industry. Last February, I had the opportunity to visit the Hyundai Heavy Industries shipyard in Ulsan, Korea. It was incredibly impressive, very efficient, the cleanest place you could have eaten off the floor. Um, and uh, they were building some South Korean uh, naval vessels on the shipyard. It actually just delivered last week uh, one of the frigates that we saw being built. 
But, um, you know, both Japan and South Korea are incredible allies for us, uh, very important in that Indo-Pacific uh, strategy and in the um, the team that needs to be in place to uh, to meet this growing threat from China and their blue water aspirations. So, um, you know, again, as a retired naval officer, um, you know, we are intricately tied with South Korea since the end of the Korean conflict 70 years ago. Uh, we have been lockstep with our with our South Korean partners and and our, our partners in Japan. So uh, I could certainly see this program expanding um, to both of those countries as, uh, you know, it, it's important that we have the proper maritime forces in, in place to maintain that, that peace and security that's so critical in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so, Chris Towns, I'm going to I'm going to give you a little bit of background here before I ask the next question. Uh, we we know, I mean, it's the, the reality is that uh, pe- most of this, the national security thinkers uh, in all of these countries that we've been talking about are, are most deeply concerned about China, China's activities. Uh, the Philippines, for example, uh, the, there, there's an area in the, the South China Sea in the Spratly Islands called Second Thomas Shoal, uh, which is off the island of uh, Palawan. Uh, the Sierra Madre, I'm sure you've heard of the name of that ship. It's a very, very old ship that was ran, ran aground on one of the reefs there and has served as a sort of a permanent, uh, I guess, uh, observation post for the Philippines uh, in the South China Sea region. Uh, the, the, China has what's called the Maritime Militia, and they have been uh, essentially harassing uh, Philippine ships, both with the uh, the militia vessels and even with their with the the Chinese Coast Guard. So there's a concern that there might be a flashpoint there between China and the Philippines uh, over a portion of the uh, of the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. Uh, one of some of the other things that are going on is that the the U.S. and Japanese navies. Uh, have staged, uh, well, Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, let me be clear, uh, have staged uh, a, a carrier uh, aircraft carrier meetup in the Western Pacific as a demonstration, a, a deterrence effort. Uh, there's also uh, growing concern across the Pentagon about uh, the PLA's modernization and growing aggression, especially the PLA Navy, uh, because there's concerns, obviously, about Taiwan as well. And more recently, uh, the Na- U.S. Navy, back in August, ran something called the Large Scale Exercise 2023. And uh, I mentioned uh, uh, Admiral James Fogo earlier, leading the, the Navy League Center for Maritime Strategy. He was critical, Admiral Fogo was, in, in playing a role in sort of forcing the U.S. Navy's admirals and the Marine Corps' uh, generals to work collaboratively across this very large-scale exercise where you're dealing with multiple theaters, multiple crises all taking place at the same time. So obviously the Center for Maritime Strategy is already having an impact uh, on strategic thinking and and uh, planning and, and pre- preparation for conflict uh, and deterrence specifically. So why was the Center for Maritime Strategy begun in the first place? What are the long-term strategic plans for think that think tank function inside the Navy League? Can you give us a little bit of a background on that? Absolutely. So we we were uh, we recognized and and were um, kind of challenged by a number of Navy leaders that that there was a a void and a vacuum in uh, in a maritime think tank. Hmm. Um, you know, the Air Force has got the Mitchell Group, which is hosted by the Air Force Association. Um, so it, there was an opportunity for us to stand up the Center for Maritime Strategy, 
And again, uh, last January 31st was the ribbon cutting for the center, and they have done unbelievable things. Um, raised the credibility of the Navy League uh, significantly. And let me talk a little bit about uh, Jamie Fogo. Um, uh, Admiral Fogo, four-star admiral. Um, his last post was Commander Naval Forces Europe and Africa, former Sixth Fleet Commander. Uh, Jamie is a legendary naval officer. Uh, he is an astute navalist and, and, uh, just a fascinating person to listen to. And he has an unbelievable ability to, to recall names, um, from, from past history. So we were thrilled to death when we had the opportunity to hire Admiral Fogo to be the dean of the Center for Maritime Strategy. And he has not disappointed, um, the, the content. Uh, that they're putting out is, is, is being, uh, uh, listened to at all levels, uh, of industry and the government. And, and we feel it's really moving the needle. Um, unfortunately, the, the center, uh, CMS, we call it, does not come without a cost. Right. And, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're challenged with funding the, the CMS. So if you're a corporation out there and, uh, ha- have, have concerns about our sea lanes and, security of those sea lanes um talk to us about you know sponsorship for the center because uh uh you know it's not free but we feel that it's it's worth the expense uh to get that vital information out to the public um so uh the cms puts out um regular information uh the the mock is their their platform they the maritime operations center they put out all sorts of content again fascinating podcasts articles position papers um on the issues that we feel uh, are important to the united states maritime security uh, again the uh, cms hosts their congressional maritime intensive as i mentioned earlier bringing members of congress and their staff in into our headquarters building to talk about the issues at hand um and they they just host a, a variety of events that are important in this space. Um, so we are we are thrilled to death about CMS and what they're doing. You mentioned Admiral Fogo's participation in these large scale exercises. Uh, he's the perfect guy for it. He's got the big <laughs> picture. I know on uh, some of these he served as the uh, Secretary of Defense. Other ones he served as the President of the United States in the in in roles during these exercises because he has that. Uh, that ability and that breadth of knowledge to uh, perform those roles uh, intelligently and extremely well. So, uh, you know, again, just just other opportunities um, to get the get the word of the Navy League and the Center for Maritime Strategy out there in front of our Navy leaders. And it's it's important that Jamie's out there doing those things. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Chris Townsend, who serves as the national president of the Navy League of the United States, and we're discussing the USC services. Uh, so, Chris, we, we've talked a great deal this morning about many different aspects of the Navy League's work. Uh, what excites you most as as national president of the Navy League about programs being run today inside the different sea services? Uh, is it the Marine Corps' new operational doctrine, uh, which 
when it was adopted was uh, a bit controversial. Uh, took a lot of shots from uh, retired senior officers, etc. Uh, but I think uh, it has the full support of the of the new commandant, and and a lot of people are seeing some benefits to the the restructuring of the Marine Corps' operational doctrine. Maybe maybe it's the Coast Guard's effort to push out. Uh, to work more closely with partner nations around the world, and especially their preparations to operate effectively in the Arctic Ocean with the Polar Security Cutter Program. Maybe it's a recognition that uh, that seems to be dawning on Congress uh, that they need to do better, be better prepared uh, in supporting the maritime services for pure competition in major theater wars, including wars at sea. I think we've learned from the conflict in Ukraine that we expend munitions a heck of a lot faster than we would ever really anticipate. Some of the wargaming that's been done uh, over a possible uh, you know, PLA attack on Taiwan have indicated that the U.S. Navy would use up most of our ordnance in the Pacific theater in about 14 days, and then we'd be uh, you know, in, in trouble. Uh, so even Congress has been running some of their own war games. I, I know that our, our neighboring state here in Wisconsin, uh, Representative Gallagher, who's a military veteran, actually ran a, a war game uh, in Congress for members of the House to get them to understand the critical nature of this situation with Taiwan. So as as National President of Navy League, what, what is it that has your attention when it comes to strategic readiness for the sea services? What are the, what are you seeing inside the services that really have you, uh, I guess, uh, jazzed? Well, I tell you, when uh, Commandant David Berger introduced the uh, Marine Corps' new operational doctrine, you're right. It uh, <laughs> it was it was uh, uh, received without you know with it, it was not received without controversy. You know, the removal of um, Marine Corps armor and artillery um, was a big change, but uh, Commandant Berger uh, rightfully understood that the Marine Corps in today's environment needed to be more agile and. Um, you know, I I think the uh, the change is starting to settle in. Um, I had the opportunity to meet uh, and have dinner with uh, Commandant Eric Smith last October fourteenth, as uh, we we hosted the National Navy Birthday Ball. Um, and, and, and we uh, wish him a speedy recovery. He just took the words out of my mouth. Uh, Commandant Smith, Eric Smith, is a great American, and. Uh, as he recovers from his medical challenges uh, that he, he he suffered literally a week after I, I met with him. Um, but but all of the news we're hearing is, is positive. He's recovering nicely and uh, we need him. We need him back in the office. The Marine Corps needs him. This nation needs Eric Smith in that role as commandant. He, he's just absolutely a, a, a brilliant Marine Corps leader. And he supports the uh uh, Commandant Berger's doctrine, the new new doctrine for the Marine Corps, and um, you know it is important. But uh, yeah, the uh, the old guard is getting over it, and uh, <laughs> hopefully accepting that this is this is what the uh, today's world needs for by our Marine Corps. You mentioned the Coast Guard, and um, you know we we've got a fantastic relationship with the Coast Guard. Um, Commandant Linda Fagan is a is a friend of the Navy League. Uh, we we see her often. Uh, I just had breakfast with uh, the vice commandant, uh, Vice Admiral Poland, on Saturday at the White House, ironically. And, um, you know, they, we have a, a very, very strong relationship with the Coast Guard. In some ways, we support the Coast Guard as much or more than the other services because they need the support. Um, during sequestration, I know our local councils were out there uh, speaking with the, the Coast Guard cutters and uh, units 
every day trying to figure out what they need. In Orlando, my home council, we have an adopted Coast Guard cutter over in Canaveral, the Vigilant. And uh, the Vigilant was out at sea during sequestration. So I was on the phone nightly with the ombudsman from the the Vigilant families, uh, organizing uh, anything and everything they needed from baby formula to food to gift cards. Um, So we enjoy an amazing relationship with the Coast Guard. And, you know, frankly, the the Coast Guard is – is, is expanding their role. They have become a blue water coast guard. You know, our national security cutters are out there around the world, working with our partner nations, um, enforcing, uh, the unregulated illegal fishing activities, uh, around the world. Um, so I couldn't be prouder of our coast guard. You mentioned the polar security cutters and that was a huge Navy league initiative, uh, <clears throat> five, 10 years ago. And we really helped, move the needle on that initiative and get those uh, icebreakers approved that should be out in the fleet here anytime. Cause we were woefully behind in that regard to our uh, competitors out there, as far as um, the uh, uh, ability to operate in the, in the Arctic. So, um, you know, the, uh, I, I couldn't be prouder of where our coast guards going um, and uh, in the relationship that the Navy league enjoys with them. So all of those things, you know, we have the ear of Congress. We are ensuring that these issues are forefront to the discussion and the uh, the priorities that, that Congress um, is looking at because, you know, we, we are in great peer competition right now. And uh, we, we have not had a, uh, a threat like we face today and many, many years in this country. And the maritime services are going to play a very critical role in keeping that threat in check. So uh, you can sleep better at night knowing that the Navy League is on the case. We're going to continue to push these focus areas and make sure that those those topics are forefront of the discussion. Uh, so, Chris, one final question before we start uh, winding down our discussions today. You're a retired Naval officer. Our training dictates that we care for our sailors. Uh, this is true of all leaders in in the sea services. At the Navy League, can you talk more specifically about how the Navy League supports our sailors, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, and Merchant Mariners? Well, um, you know, that that is forefront to our mission, is, uh, you know, ensuring that our sea service members, our warfighters, have, um, have the tools that they need to do their job. My son is a uh, is a naval officer in flight training in Pensacola. My nephew is a Super Hornet pilot, weapons school instructor, and uh, getting ready to transition to the F thirty five. So, issues that support our our sea service members and their families are absolutely uh, at the forefront of every discussion by the Navy League. We have to ensure that they need that their needs are met, and uh, um, you know we're, we're going to make sure that that. Uh, any of those issues uh, are, are, again, communicated early and often to members of Congress and make sure that the programs are funded that need to be to ensure that our warfighters have the tools they need. So, Chris, I always try to reserve a little bit of time at the end of the show for, for my guests to have uh, the last word. So what final thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with uh, today regarding the Navy League of the United States? Uh, the floor is yours, sir. 
You know, for your listeners out there, if if today is the first time you've ever heard the words Navy League of the United States, uh, hopefully uh, uh, the message has resonated with you. Um, it's an important organization. We've been around 121 years, started by Teddy Roosevelt. Again, the three mission pillars to educate, advocate, and support on behalf of our sea services, our sea service members and their families. Um, if you'd like to learn more about the Navy League, go visit NavyLeague.org. More importantly, if you'd like to get involved with the Navy League, you know, the Navy League, like every other membership-based organization out in our country, is is suffering from membership. You know, we have stabilized at around 31,000. Uh, I'd like to see us at 35,000 when I leave office here in a year and a half, year and seven months. Um, but we have a network of councils around the country um, and lots of opportunities to get involved. Uh, so I encourage you to go to our website, learn more about the Navy League of the United States, follow the Center for Maritime Strategy and the important information that we're putting out, and we would love to have you in our ranks. Join the cause to support our city services. We need folks that are willing to roll up their sleeves and get involved at the local council level. So I encourage you to take a look at that, and uh, again, we'd love to have you on board. So, Chris, the, the Navy League hosts a major annual event. It's called Sea Air Space. Uh, can you tell us about the event uh, for 2024? I think it's in April. Uh, what should people know about it, and how can they register if they'd like to attend in person? You're absolutely right. The uh, 2024 Sierra Space uh, starts on uh, 7 April. It runs through uh, the, the 10th of April, again, held at the beautiful Gaylord Hotel in the National Harbor in D.C. We are the foremost maritime exposition uh, in Last year, we had 18,000 visitors at the at the conference. We had uh, companies from across the industry, uh, the whole military uh, industry and maritime industry, <clears throat> very well attended by uh, the military. I believe we had 297 U.S. flag and general officers in attendance. We had 130 uh, international flag officers in attendance. So uh, it is just in a tremendous forum. Uh, that covers every aspect within the maritime space. And, um, oh, by the way, if you're a uh, Navy League member, you get to come in for free. But uh, <laughs> we'd love to have you. If you go to our website, uh, under events, you'll you'll see a uh, an entire section on sea, air, space. Um, but, again, next, next April uh, 7th through the 10th, we'd love to have you come out. And uh, I think you will be blown away at the quality um, – and the uh, just the quantity of information that's out there that we present. Uh, and oh, by the way, it's put on solely by by our staff. We have 36 full-time staff members at the Navy League. I am a volunteer senior leader in the organization. And, uh, you know, we uh, our, our staff is small but mighty. And uh, we're one deep. We don't have a bench. Everybody at the, on the Navy League staff is, uh, is, is, is rowing in the same direction. Mike Stevens, our CEO, um, former Master Chief Petty Officer of the, uh, the Navy, MCPON 13, he runs our Navy League team, runs the business of the Navy League, and there's nobody better, better out there to uh, uh, run the Navy League operation than Mike Stevens. He's an incredible American. So uh, come see us at Sierra Space. All right, Chris Townsend, the National President of the Navy League of the United States, thank you so much for joining us today here on National Security This Week. 
Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finished week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.